Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we stare into the abyss of the week ahead and hope that the abyss does not stare back into us. Happy Monday. <laughs> I'm Andrew Harrison and up early to greet another week of golden opportunity is Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hello, Andrew. I'm fine. Am I here representing the abyss then? Y- yeah, you are the abyss. <laughs> Am I the spokesperson for the abyss? <laughs> <laughs> is there an echo in here? Have you recovered from a heavy weekend of hard work meetings? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. No Good. drinking was involved. <laughs> okay. It's another day. Another party has leaked out. The mirror says Johnson attended a leaving do for his defence advisor in the run-up to, the, to Christmas 2020 and gave a speech to. It's not going away, is it? No, it's not going away. And I have to say, whoever is leaking this stuff is doing a really good job with it. There is an ebb and a flow to the story that just doesn't let the government breathe. You know, we get a drip, drip, drip of small revelations which keep the story going. And then every week there is a further big revelation which kind of makes the story flare up again. So... Whoever is um, is doing this, they've got a hell of a good showrunner. <laughs> it's, it's Russell T Davis, or uh, you know, one of the guys. Who runs it, it, there's a good arc to him. There is, it? yes. <laughs> now, first up, it's goodbye to Veganuary. They only made it 16 days in. Very poor show because apparently it's Red Meat Week in a bid to save Big Dog. This is the blitz of populist policies that we're promised. Oh, Lord. Yes. To rescue Boris Big Dog Johnson's flagging popularity, which is now vying with income tax and hemorrhoids. First up is Nadine Dorry suddenly deciding to abolish the BBC licence fee, just like that. We're also going to see the end of all COVID restrictions on January the 26th, we're told, all via leaks. The Navy will be told to police the channel to stop migrants coming in. The levelling up paper will finally be uh, published very, very soon. What a coincidence. And there's going to be a drink span in government buildings. Is this the equivalent of a wayward husband turning up on Monday with some supermarket flowers and a box of Ferrero Rocher and saying, <laughs> I've changed, babe. Will you have me back? We can make it work. This is exactly what it is. This is exactly what it is. What a great analogy. Okay, let me uncouple those things slightly in order to talk about them. So let's talk about uh, Operation Save Big Dog first, which is... <laughs> I can't believe we're going to this. <laughs> I know. Which is uh, uh, Johnson's push to save himself, basically. Will sacking a series of civil servants nobody has heard of help Johnson escape accountability? Maybe, but it's unlikely. First, the Conservatives have been in charge of Downing Street for 12 years. And there is no suggestion, I think, that Downing Street was a party house under, say, Theresa May. Um, (laughs) So there is a clear change in culture when Johnson came in. The second thing, and I think more important, is that Johnson was helped to power by his reputation as being anarchic. You know, rule breaking is an aspect of him that he actively sold to voters. They have now turned against this very feature of him. The other facet of him that was consistently brought up in focus group after focus group was that he was authentic. Now, you and I know that is bullshit, but voters believed it. Mm. Voters believed that, you know, they were seeing the real Boris Johnson. In asking people to believe that he's the person now to impose order and discipline and sobriety on Downing Street seems to me a huge stretch and inauthentic. 
So I think it's the first time he's doing something overtly that is against the image of him the voters have. And I think actually the effect is going to be the reverse of what he's trying to achieve. I think once you notice that the emperor is naked, there's no way to dress the emperor again. On top of that, he's been in charge of Downing Street for 30 months. So sacking the servants plays into the worst aspect that voters suspect Johnson for, that he's an entitled toff and a weasel. I was just reminded of, uh, you know, a bit from The Simpsons just jumped into my mind when Homer gets caught up with some, doing something absolutely awful and his response is, Marge, I swear to you, I never thought you'd find out. <laughs> yes, it is patently, you know, the fact that he was caught. Mm. That's the the foremost problem in his mind here. And the problem with it is that that entire defence relies on the notion that there are no more revelations to come and there won't be any future slip-ups. And both things are extremely unlikely under Johnson because he's accident-prone and his MPs know that. So what you're left with is that he should be forgiven for all this minor stuff that has been going on and will keep going on because he's so terrific in all other important aspects. Problem is both elements of that are untrue. This stuff isn't minor, and he's not a great prime minister in any other way. So as the cost of living begins to to bite and Brexit keeps rumbling on, for how long will voters be willing to forgive him for the administrative cock-ups? They might forgive him if he was good at his day job. But if he's shit at his day job, they're not going to forgive him the parties at night. That's the point. It's also kind of a hostage to fortune, branding these things as save big dog, which everybody has been just rolling about laughing at, and red meat week. It's kind of setting expectations rather high, isn't it? The deliciousness of failure of things with with these kind of, you know, hubristic titles is just too much to resist, even for people who might be... So, okay, so looking at the second fold of this, Operation Red Meat... So what it does is it it puts the country in the grip of a tiny group of extreme MPs in charge of various wedge issues. Now, the last time that happened was when May was forced into her ridiculous red lines on Brexit, the consequences of which the country will be living with for decades. Only it's worse because in this case, the measures are diverse, they're wide-ranging, um, and by virtue of being rushed, they're quite half-baked. So they are essentially a series of policy bribes. The problem for Johnson is that it grants him a temporary reprieve, but arguably it degrades his relationship with his own MPs even further by making it transactional. Yeah, it's like you're easily bought off, aren't you? If I just, exactly. I'll just throw you this, you, you'll, if you'll do he, if he, and, and And what you're, you're left with is that if he's in trouble again, if he's in trouble still in two weeks, or if he's in trouble again in six months, his MPs will now expect more red meat, and there's a limited supply. So anyone who knows the the fate of Ramsay Bolton on Game of Thrones 
Didn't he run no, UKIP for a while? That, he was the leader of UKIP for a while, I'm this, sure. Knows that this is not an effective long-term strategy, right? Yes. Eventually, eventually the dogs eat the big dog. The bottom line is this. It will depend on the, it depend on the polls, and if he manages to hold on uh, uh, long enough, it will depend on the local elections. If his popularity and the party's popularity recovers significantly, then he may get uh, a, a little breathing space. If it doesn't, he's gone after the, the local elections because it seems to me that the Conservative Party has already decided that Johnson cannot possibly go to the country on its behalf come the next general election. The only debates are when to replace him and with whom, and those debates will eventually be settled. He knows that, they know that. So in many, many ways, I think he's dead man walking. Before we indulge in the uh, the conceit that these are real policies and not just, as you say, uh, bribes to people like Bridgen and so on, I wanted to ask you, did you enjoy the dredging up of a two-year-old story about Keir Starmer? with one beer, oh, as if it's the equivalent I, to number 10 turning into the Hacienda, as Gary Neville said. The mail has been running this story for three days now. Genuinely, I cannot, like the, the moral depravity that it takes for a, uh, for a newspaper to be trying to draw some sort of equivalence between the seat of power in the country, having parties with DJs in the basement, with suitcases full of booze arriving on the the night of effectively the queen the queen consort's wake with basically a group of people taking a break to have a pizza and a beer i don't care to even comment on it i hope people see it for what it is i think they do um i think it seems desperate and craven and I hope the publications that are pushing it uh, get punished for it by losing some readers. Let's uh, go mad and treat these as if they're real policies for a second. Cutting mm. two billion from the BBC budget, freezing the license fee, and announcing new ways to fund and sell great British content. Obviously, this is purely vindictive. It's uh, you know blame the BBC for ITV scoops. Quite interesting. Can, as you were saying, you can't just pull policies like this out your ear. Can they pull it off in the in the two years they've got to an election? And obviously, they may or may not win that election. But in two years, do you have? Is there enough time to cement a BBC funding settlement? Even if they do, the review of it will be in twenty twenty seven. By which time, it will be a different administration. It may be a different Conservative administration, or it may be a Labour one. But it will be a different administration. I think the Conservatives ultimately do not want the BBC to perish. They want the BBC to be there, but they want the BBC to be subservient and willing to amplify government diktat. The way to do that is to keep them constantly afraid for their funding. If they actually uncouple that fear for their funding from the BBC, the BBC might get more independent, which is certainly what they don't want. If they get rid of the BBC altogether, then they lose what is actually a very government-friendly source of 
news amplification. You know, political considerations aside, I know a lot of people complain that the BBC is right wing. I know that a lot of people complain that the BBC is left wing. The BBC is neither. In my view, the BBC is pro-government. You know, the BBC feels a heavy sense of responsibility as the state broadcaster and so favours amplifying government announcements. Um, And you see that very, very clearly when it comes to state events, when it comes especially to events uh, involving the monarchy, the BBC takes very much a stance that we are here representing the, the British state. And more than that, the traditional British state. I mean, how often do you have Republicans arguing for the abolition of the monarchy in the BBC? Very, very rarely indeed. How often do you have you know, genuine radical leftists on the BBC, very, very rarely indeed. And so no state will ultimately want to lose that mode of amplification. This is all about keeping it frit and keeping it subservient. Ultimately, it might backfire because I think in polling after polling, people are unhappy with the content that the BBC is putting out if you put specific things to them, but they defend the idea of the BBC as an institution. So I have seen no polling that suggests the BBC should be abolished. And the Conservatives, I think, should be very, very careful not to get in a situation where they allow uh, an opposition party to go into uh, an election saying, vote for us to save the BBC, because I think that's actually quite a powerful message. There's also a kind of a real politic trap they'd be setting for themselves. Is it Go back to our showrunner, don't kill the villain. If the BBC is the Conservative Universe's villain, when you kill the villain... You know, where's your raison d'etre? Look at the state of the yep. Brexiters when Brexit happened. They're still, I think Nick Cohen called it bayonetting the corpses on the battlefield. They're still coming <laughs> after us, the Remainers, it's all our fault. Once you've killed your villain, where do you go? I want to ask you, do you think that Doris has pulled this out of area in emergency circumstances? It is part of the red meat thing. But does this make the end of the licence fee now official, immovable conservative orthodoxy it's been on the fringes for years they've toyed with it even at the last election johnson didn't say i will abolish the license fee by saying this and by saying this is the last negotiation has dorries for all of their ineptitude and viciousness kind of engraved it in stone in conservative orthodoxy no because it may simply mutate into a different way of funding the bbc that's sort of I mean, in Greece, you pay for the the state broadcaster through your electricity bill, for instance. Mm. There's a small levy on utility bills. Um, in other countries, you pay for it uh, via small levy, a ring-fenced levy in your tax. You know, there are other ways of funding a straight broadcaster. I think the license fee is one of the better ones, as it were, if it weren't for this constant debate about defunding the BBC. Because actually, when you do it through taxation, I mean, you know, France doesn't have a debate every year about uh, abolishing their national broadcast, neither does Germany or Greece. You make a rod for your own back in some ways. And, you know, the BBC can always negotiate a different way of being funding, funded that's satisfactory to them. But I think TV license is actually quite a good way. It's important to point out, I think, that what Doris is using as a fulcrum to sort of lift this issue is the idea of 
you know, police harassing 80-year-old people for their yeah. license fee. A, cre- a situation they created. Exactly. It's important to note that this is a situation they created because they abolished free TV licenses. I think it was for the over 75s, um, which was the case before. So, you know, if she doesn't want to see that, maybe someone will suggest uh, that she make them free for um, pensioners again. This idea of ending Plan B COVID rules, that there will be no rules at all from 26th of January. This looks like an absolute straight out of a Telegraph leader column. Is there, is there any justification for this? I mean, obviously, Omicron has not been as severe as we thought it was going to be. But can there be any justification? And does this place him in a, in a situation where if cases reverse and start to rise again, he won't have the political capital to reimpose restrictions? He doesn't have the political capital to impose restrictions now. And I would imagine that the effect of party gate on people will be for people who wanted to disregard the rules to disregard them anyway. I mean, it's very, very difficult to reimpose discipline once discipline is lost. I've said this many times with relation to COVID restrictions. We are certainly at a dangerous fork on the road because there is the possibility that the next variant will be both transmissible and more dangerous. And if that happens, everyone who dislikes public health measures will say, ah, they said this about Omicron, that turned out to be all right. We will be in a very, very tricky situation health-wise. There's literally nothing that can be done about it. The, The only source of comfort is that every time regulations are relaxed, restrictions are relaxed for what people perceive to be political rather than public health reasons, and this is an important distinction, most people react in the opposite way. So the vast majority of people actually become more careful. That's what's happened in the past. When uh, restrictions have been relaxed too soon, while there's a rampant situation going on, or, for instance, when restrictions are not imposed like they weren't imposed before Christmas with the Omicron variant, what you saw is that the pendulum from the public was that most of them had very modest Christmas celebrations, took everything very seriously, tested regularly, etc., etc. So most people are effectively more responsible than the government tells them to be and that, that, I think, is a source of comfort. Uh, one more thing that's been leaked is the idea that the levelling up white paper will finally be published and there will be skills and training for benefit claimants, uh, the people whose uh, £20 a week universal credit was cut. This has been delayed for you know 18 months, two years now. You've already talked about how the Red Wall is highly unlikely to take these uh, emergency sudden surprise policies seriously, but we will at least be seeing Michael Gove do some work in public. Do you think the sudden production in a flourish of the levelling up white paper is going to wash at all? No. Um, I mean, it it depends on the policies, obviously, that are in it. And Gove is one of the most effective operators and communicators left in government. Unlikable, yes. Uh, uh, You know, morally dubious, yes. But still quite an effective operator. He's probably the most competent of the lot at the moment. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, 
underestimate his uh, capacity to put together decent policies and to sell them well. Away from emergency stops to Paul Dacre and back to regular policies, the Police Crime and Sensing <laughs> Bill is coming up for a crucial vote in the Lords. What's happening? What do we need to look out for? And if it goes through the Lords, is that it? Yes and no. So um, I think we are in a ping-pong situation, so I think it will go back and forth a few times. Late tonight, the government is introducing a series of amendments to the bill and a series of additions to the bill, and they've done this a lot. And for a bill at its final stage in, in the Lords, this is actually very unusual. So these are policy changes, some of them very significant, that the Commons have not seen even once, have not debated once, and have not read once. And so I think the government thinks it's being clever, but what they're actually doing is they're giving Lords, the Lords a, a totally democratic excuse to say, nope, this needs to go back to the Commons and be debated because you have changed it so much. It is effectively a different piece of legislation and they will be absolutely right to do that. Around 8pm, uh, peers will be voting on uh, a Best for Britain organised amendment concerning specifically the right to protest outside Parliament. There are some clauses, especially Clause 59, that would effectively make that impossible because they talk about large-scale scale demonstrations in areas which make the passage of difficult, the passage of vehicles difficult, um, and that is basically Parliament Square. They have introduced uh, a, an amendment that will um, undo that, and they're supporting it with a, a piece of polling from Opinium um, that says 79% of the public believe peaceful protests outside the House of Commons should be allowed. Good luck to them. I think it will be voted through. I think the Lords are quite hostile to it. I heard one of them, a Conservative peer on the Today programme, describe this as a slide into authoritarianism, as a slide into a police state. I don't think she was being hyperbolic. There have never been such intrusive powers drafted so loosely. I have never examined a piece of legislation that gives gives such a wide remit to the police to decide whether something is noisy or not, whether something is disruptive or not. It effectively gives the police a carte blanche to break up any protest, any size anywhere. And I don't think that, I think I think that's actually quite insufferable to a lot of the sort of more left-leaning lords because they are progressive in their politics and more of the right-leaning lords because they are libertarian in their instinct. Okay, we'll keep an eye out for that one. A handful of other things we can expect to come up over the week. There'll probably be more detail on possible British involvement in that uh, horrific Texas synagogue hostage taking over the weekend. A British man died in the incident, uh, the hostage taker. All hostages were uh, recovered safely, thankfully. And two teenage Britons have been arrested in Blackburn in connection with that. So there'll probably be more to see on that. There will obviously be more news on that very distressing tsunami in Tonga. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, Alex, are you expecting anything more on Barry Gardner? and his £425,000 in donations from China. 
you know, if if you were tipping Xi Jinping on, you know, the the fulcrum of power in Britain, would would Barry Gardner be your go to guy? Look, I think we need to be very careful to not allow the debate to become xenophobic. There were suggestions. I saw an interview with uh, Barry Gardner and John Craig on Sky News, which suggested openly a number of times that he should have known he was taking money from the Chinese regime. And I questioned the basis on which he should have known that, um, because the woman in question, Christine Lee, is a British citizen. So what are we saying? Are we saying that any donation from a British Chinese person should be seen as coming directly from Beijing, that uh, uh, donors of that ethnic background should be treated more suspiciously than others. I think it is legitimate to ask probing questions about this, to ask what Barry Gardner knew and when, to ask why the security services weren't clearer in their uh, warnings, You know, this is someone who has had influence on a lot of people from both sides of the uh, the Commons Isle. You know, this is someone who had the Prime Minister's ear, um, David Cameron, you know, at times, who has donated money to the Liberal Democrats and Tory MPs. So this is someone who is seeking influence, as a lot of people with a lot of money do. And that is the point. In my view, this fits ex- exactly into the same framework as Greensill, Russian donations to the Tories, Randux, etc. It, it, it's about seeing declaring an interest as resolving a conflict of interest, which it doesn't. We have a system that encourages the buying of influence. That's the bottom line. We then get occasionally exercised about whom the current buyers of influence are. It is a system that needs the reform. If we put up our politicians' influence for sale, we can't then be picky about who buys it. And I don't understand why this is suddenly a big story. This is something that's been rumbling around for years. While, you know, conservative uh, future prime ministers playing tennis with Russian oligarchs for 250 grand is not a big story they're both big stories and it's the entire system we need to we need to uh, uh clean up and as someone of foreign extraction i don't want to get into a situation where if i become mega rich in 10 years time because this podcast is so successful <laughs> and i end up donating a million to the Labour Party, it is seen as the Greek state trying to interfere. Finally, before we move on, undiluted schadenfreude as Novak Djokovic is finally deported from Australia over the weekend. Thoughts (laughs) on that, Alex? Did you enjoy it? I didn't enjoy it. Uh, Look, he's been treated unfairly in the sense that the Australian government has effectively made an example of him, you know, pour discourager les autres Mm anti-vaxxers. I have no problem but with that. But I have no pro- <laughs> yes, I have no problem with that because I like the cause, as it were, but we must be careful not to excuse the con- conduct because we agree with the cause. What is also true is that most of immigration law is framed to be unfair to the applicant by design. And Djokovic, by virtue of his status and means, 
has been able to fight that system much more effectively than most people caught in its cogs. So while I have some sympathy for him being treated as a, a, an example by the Australian government, I have zero sympathy for him because immigrants are always treated in this unfair manner and he had all the money in the world to fight it. I think there's, a, there's only two questions for him going forward. The first is, does he sacrifice his tennis career? in order to stick to his ridiculous anti-science stance, um, because he may well have problems getting into a number of countries for other tournaments, and unless he gets jabbed, in which case that's the end of uh, his tennis career, although I understand his political c career may flourish afterwards. Um, the second question is, now that he has some, albeit privileged, understanding of the plight of migrants, will he use his platform to become an advocate for them? Because his politics are quite nationalistic. And so he feeds the thing that victimized him. And that's why there's a sort of delicious irony to it. I hope that the experience will change him rather than expect that it will. I would say don't hold your breath. And that's the week ahead. Alex, thanks for getting up early to brief us. Thank you, Andrew. We'll be back tomorrow with the roundtable edition of The Bunker. Don't forget to follow us on your favourite podcast app. There's a new bunker every day except Friday, and you can get every edition early when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.